We believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of all things, seen and unseen, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten as only begotten of the Father, that is, of the being of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, consubstantial with the Father, through whom all things came into existence, both things in heaven and things on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and became man, suffered and rose again the third day, ascended into the heavens, and is coming to judge the living and the dead. This is the first edition of the Creed spoken in many Christian churches every Sunday, known as the Nicene Creed. It was composed at the end of the first council of its kind, a gathering of bishops, to discuss a disputed theological matter called by the Emperor Constantine. This week... This week's podcast in many ways mimics this first council of the church and that it is a very heated discussion of the theology of Nicaea. But first, let me introduce myself. I'm Chad Kim, and I'm the host of A History of Christian Theology. On this show are my two co-hosts, Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams, as well as our guests, Benjamin Brandon. As stated at the outset, this week we discuss the first ecumenical council of the church, the Nicene Creed. Those of you who are familiar with the Nicene Creed might be aware that the one I read does not sound exactly like the Nicene Creed you are used to hearing in church. The reason is, the creed we call the Nicene Creed was finalized in the year 381 at Constantinople. The proper name of the creed now common to all churches who bear the name Christians is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. As we will see in upcoming episodes, the First Council at Nicaea in many ways just begins a more heated form of the debate rather than settles it, thus it needed some updating in 381. In this podcast, we spend a great deal of time discussing the theology of Origen of Alexandria. While Origen was long since dead when the council was called, his theology was so profound and complex that it influenced theologians on all sides of the debate about the proper way to understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This is primarily at issue in the debates of the 4th century. How is the Logos, incarnate of Jesus of Nazareth, related to God the Father? In order to preserve the unity and separateness of God the Father, Arius argued that the Logos was created by God. He believed himself to be interpreting scripture correctly, following the theology of origin. On the other side, theologians like Athanasius argued that the Logos could not have been a creature and must be part of God's very being. He too thought that he was following the theology of origin. It appears that in one place, origin might have used the phrase homoousios, meaning of the same substance, which becomes part of the legacy of Nicaea in 325 as quoted above. This term is the debated term in the Council of Nicaea. Okay, I think that's enough introduction. I think it's important to give some context to this very complex and critical topic and the development of Christian theology. Nearly all Christians, whether they know it or not, if they call themselves Trinitarian, follow the Nicene Creed. For me, it is the best possible way to understand, probably the most important aspect of theology, that God made himself human in order to suffer on the behalf of sinful humans. The Trinitarian theology of Nicaea tries to explain, in the clearest possible way, how this can happen. If you enjoy this podcast, please review and rate us on iTunes, and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. We don't ask for donations, but this would help us grow our listenership. Also, if you have any questions about what we are discussing, please comment on our Facebook page. And we would like to add a segment to the podcast where we respond to questions from our listeners. So if you'd like to have your question read on air, please post to the it to the comments of our Facebook page. Thanks again. Here's the show. All right, enough prolegomena. Go. Uh, all right, so we read uh, three separate little treatises um, that discuss the um, sort of the first council, the first ecumenical council recognized by the East, the West, and the Far East. So we haven't really delved into just how broad the early church writings go um, and we hope to uh, fix that by the end of the summer um, but this council is basically recognized by anyone who calls themselves Christian um, you know and so I mean I cannot overstate the importance of this first ecumenical council and even as I say that um, I also have to make a distinction many people talk about the council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed um, and the creed that we're going to discuss today and the letters we're going to discuss today comes from the council at 325, which is only part of what we come to call the Nicene Creed, which the full creed is actually written at 381. 
So the technical term is the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Uh, but because nobody can say that correctly, uh, I guess we just say Nicene Creed. And technically, the Constantinople part, was, which is in 381, isn't supposed to be doing anything new. It's just further explaining um, what was said in 325. Now, we'll talk about whether or not that's actually the case, um, but that's the way that it's uh, told. Um, as if it was just in continuity and further explaining what was done at 325. So I think we use the term Council of or Creed of Nicaea because that's supposed to be the one standard statement. And so as far as I know, um, generally speaking, if you call yourself a Christian, you ascribe to some variation uh, of the stuff that were, uh, or you ascribe to, not to a variation, to this specifically. Because um, here is where Christians formalized um, the, the Trinitarian fo- um, uh, formula uh, and how we define who, you know, how we understand God um, in, uh, in three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, um, I mean, any other comments about the context of this uh, very monumentous creed? Um, we can go ahead and, and start there. But yeah, I just, I felt like I should say at the outset that like, you know, here is... This is the beginning uh, of of or this is like where um, you know I, it's kind of, I don't know like I'm trying to decide if it's the beginning or the end. It's the end of a process that I think you know has been been building, uh, but it's also this like okay here we're going to write it all out and everybody kind of agrees to this. Yeah, I have two points to make regarding context. One is kind of an ancient context. Two is more of a modern context. Um, you mentioned that this is an ecumenical creed. That's something that is significant to people of Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic backgrounds. Like a lot of, especially modern evangelicals, would not understand what that means. It's important to the Orthodox and to the Catholics because a creed is a statement of beliefs. And if it's an ecumenical creed, what that means is all the bishops got together and agreed to it. And because they all got together and agreed to it, it was given essentially the force of scripture or the word of God. And so um, now I don't know that the actual members at Nicaea would have had a concept of an ecumenical creed. I think that comes in the wake of the council of Nicaea, but within a hundred years, the church had this notion that if we want to hammer out doctrine, all the bishops get together and hammer it out. And if it's, if all the bishops agree, then it is doctrine. It is, it's dogma. We have to believe it. And so the context, of course, which has been alluded to in past episodes, is you have this teaching that is being propagated very largely, actually, in the eastern half of the church, which has been called Arianism um, because kind of its most stringent defender was a guy named Arius. And Arius taught that Jesus was the first created being that he was not co-eternal with God, that he was not, um, that, that there was a time when Jesus did not exist, that the Father alone is the unmade and unbegotten, and that Jesus is the first made being, so to speak, and that Jesus then created everything else, that he's greater in power than every everything except for God, um, but he is not, and, and I should add, Arius would call him God, but... That was as a a special title. He didn't think of him as the only God, like the one true God. He had kind of this, that Jesus was God-like. And this was a a pretty big teaching in the eastern half of the church. And a lot of bishops, when it became clear how prominent this was, they rose up in protest and said, Jesus is not not created. Jesus is is co-eternal with the Father. And he is equal with God in certain ways. And so what happened is Constantine called this council of the bishops to come together and to work out the truth. Now, Constantine's real concern is unanimity within the church. Constantine himself is not super well-educated in matters of Christian doctrine. But since he is the Roman emperor, and historically his predecessors persecuted everybody who didn't fall in line with the state religion, Constantine, who doesn't do that because he has embraced a policy of toleration of other religions, nonetheless wants the church unified. He believes that if the church is not unified, that it will lead to God's disfavor on the Roman Empire. 
So from Constantine's vantage point, the key is that they work it out. It doesn't really matter where it goes as long as it is worked out. So that's a point I would make about kind of ancient context. Modern context, I wanted to just add this one point. A lot of moderns criticize Christianity by saying that the Trinity did not come into existence until this point, 325. That this is when Christians started to believe the Trinity. If, I, I just want to say that's not the case. You can go back and listen to past episodes where many uh, writers who preceded the Council of Nicaea uh, stated things almost exactly, if not if not with the exact same terminology, nonetheless uh, formulated the same kind of doctrine. So this is not created here in 325. It existed beforehand. It's just codified and made law in 325. So they're not saying anything new, but they are codifying something and making it uh, the rule of the church. And then just actually, Chad, one last thing kind of in response. You said everybody who calls himself a Christian, I would I would kind of back away just slightly from that and say maybe everybody who we call Christian, or, because yeah, or, yeah, the, the term we've been using, Orthodox, because there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't ascribe to this creed. Um, Mormons call themselves well, Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses call themselves Christians. But ones that we would call Orthodox or Christian, for sure. Well, and I, I guess I should I should have said as well, what I was trying to include, like, um, there are churches in the Far East, like, uh, that, that sometimes are just called the Church of the East, um, and, and they're sometimes called Monophysite, they prefer the term Neophysite, this is Far East, even they ascribe to this ecumenical creed, and probably many of our listeners, you know, may not be aware of them, they're churches in Iraq, Iran, and Syria, um, there are Christian churches there, and they will split off in in the mid fifth century, we'll get there. Um, but even they a- agree to this um, to this creed that we're discussing today. And I guess I should say it's not absolute unanimity uh, because there is one who does not agree uh, with the formulation that's made three twenty five, and that's Arius. So the, you know, again, he he of the fame who said uh, uh, of whose you know of whose fame for having said uh, that th- there was a time when he was not. Um, the sort of little adage that historians use is that uh, you could go to a baker and they would ask you the question, was there a time when he was not? And everybody knew that he was, that they, you would be referring to, was there a time when Jesus, the Christ, uh, the Logos was not? I'd like to jump in at this point to address this notion of it being um, unanimous and um, especially this notion that, you know, all Christians agreed to, uh, the Nicene Creed so fervently, when the creed itself seems to not just simply be a theological matter. I mean, if it was a theological matter, um, it wouldn't have been so highly political. But this, the Nicene Council is a political matter as well. And this is challenging for us to understand because we have such separation of church and state now. Um, but Constantine calls the council together. He presides over the council. This is a very new Christian, and last time we talked a bit about him, I, I suggested that he was a sincere Christian, but very, uh, maybe naive. And, and so he's the one, by the way, that is going to offer up, according to many, many scholars believe that he suggested a, a key term here. So the Council of Nicaea is not merely um, acknowledging Trinitarianism, the Trinity, but it's talking about the relationship of the Son and the Father. And this is... In some sense, this is um, newer. This this is adding something to some of the previous uh, discussion. And the, the term we'll get to here in, in just a minute, and I don't know if you want to introduce this, Chad, is that of having the same essence. And, and so much of this council resolves around the notion of the, the essence that the uh, between the Father and the Son. And there's a lot of controversy here because um, I'd like to argue in just a moment that many of the Christians in the East did not really follow that. In fact, we'll talk about Eusebius of Caesarea, who led some of the opposition to, uh, to that. In fact, he was exiled um, before this council because of his teachings on this. So one of the most prominent Christians in the East is actually going to be opposed to a degree to the, the end formulation of this, and we'll read, we'll talk about his letter of sort of <laughs> apology, or, or how shall we say that, his, his defense of the council, even though he's not fully agreeing to all of its terms, he's saying it's, it's, it's close enough, perhaps. 
So um, do you want to kind of introduce? Yeah, uh, let's, yeah, let's step in there. So um, we've been talking about Eusebius of Caesarea. So he writes the church history. He's a, um, and as far as uh, timeline goes, his church history is a little uh, after this creed. Um, so, you know, it could be that some of what he writes is, is um, well, we're, so we're reading a letter that he wrote directly after this, this council. So 325 and basically he, he is, sometimes he's called a semi-Aryan and I, I, we were just talking about technical terms. I don't want to get into too many technical terms, but he doesn't believe that Jesus was, uh, or the, excuse me, that the Christ, that the Logos um, was created like humans. Um, he's not really in the same position as Arius, but he doesn't like, at least according to his letter, he's at least somewhat ambivalent. Um, and he has to write this letter to his church. He's somewhat ambivalent about uh, the term that they come up with at Nicaea, which is homoousios, of the same substance. Um, and so this is a, for a term um, that, um, you know, it's hard to escape using it, but of the same essence of the same being. Um, And, um, and so he tries to explain to his church why um, the council of Nicaea came up with the term that they did homoousios of the same essence. um, And basically sort of says, well, Constantine said it. So we have to go with it. Um, Even if it doesn't look like what we actually say, um, and so here, the reason I think it's interesting is because Eusebius seems to show um, a bit of um, dissension um, in a way with Constantine. The subtext, at least as I read his letter to his church, is that he's not 100 percent like or he wouldn't have said homoousios. He wouldn't have said of the same essence like Constantine did before the council. But he decides that it's best to go ahead and go with the emperor on this. And so that's where I find it kind of an interesting little uh, a read, a little letter, because in the um, oration and praise of Constantine, um, at least at face value, you'd think he absolutely celebrates every waking moment of the man, um, every blessed action. Uh, but here he's kind of like, well, we kind of have to go with him because he's the emperor, so let's say homoousios. Now, I agree with you that that subtext is there. I definitely see it. But I just for our listeners, you put, I think, way more of a spin in the negative. I mean, he is using it as an argument for why we, the listeners, should agree with it, right? So he's never putting it as, well, it's not really what we believe. Instead, what he's saying is, now, guys, this might make you feel uncomfortable, but look at these reasons why we should feel comfortable using this language, right? You do have the sense that there's a subtext. You do have the sense that he's not for the actual language, but he very clearly is for embracing the council, right? He says, my own, our own creed was the one that was initially used. The emperor said everything was perfect. He just added these couple of words, right? And so I think this is why it's fair. Political though, is is because it is a compromise. And these theologians, I feel like have to oversimplify some of these thoughts and, and they're kind of rubbing their heads a little bit and be like, all right, like for the sake of unity, we'll do this because to, to put this in a more general context, the East was divided between what we might call the, the, the Alexandrian or the, um, the, the, the followers of origin and origin we've talked about, you know, a month or so ago um, was a, a culmination, a height of Christian thought in the East. He was, considered the greatest of the early Christian philosophers. So instead of being called Arians, many of these who were resistant to this uh, creed are originists, followers of origin. And the reason for that is because origin taught that the word, the logos, is the offspring, the emanation of God, that the word is generated by God. God being the source of the word, which uh, is the son and later identified as Christ, God being the source of that, he is greater than that. He is the producer of that. And of course, being the producer and the source, he is greater. And so there's this, the real issue might be what we will call subordinationism. Origin taught a very general subordinationism, saying that the son is subordinate to the father. And this is actually a little bit more of the heart of what's going on here. So when the council comes, it's the Westerners and those of Antioch. And so sometimes they're coupled together, the Western slash 
uh, Antiochian church against the Alexandrian Origenist church and saying, nope, they're the exact same in essence, basically don't differentiate. And the big problem with that for many of the Origenists um, who believe in subordinationism, it says, okay, well, you just created uh, another heresy, uh, Sabellanism, where you're saying that uh, the son is basically just a different aspect or mode of the right. father. And many, I think, modern Christians don't realize how in their fervency to accept the Nicene Creed rush over into what the ancients would consider another heresy, where there's no real distinction. And they say you, you can number the Trinity, but you don't qualify it. You define it, but don't. Uh, there's no distinction between the, the Godhead. And so I think that there's a powerful theological argument for many of these Easterners. And just to kind of respond to what Tom said about the opposition, not only was the opposition real to Nicaea, in fact, after the age of uh, after Constantine's time, they repeal Nicaea, and instead of saying of of uh, the same essence, homoousius, they change it to homoi, adding the iota, the homoousius of similar or of like essence. And all the bishops really actually agree to this one. More bishops in the East agree to that one than the original Nicene Creed. Um, and we'll talk a little bit of, about that. But this ends up being rejected uh, by Eusebius and some of the others uh, in the next generation. I, so I just, I, 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 I wanna, I, well, let me. I'm going to take a. I'm going to take a put, put a stop for just a quick second. So we haven't heard much from Trevor. Um, so Trevor, if you don't mind, I'm going to use you as kind of a uh, like. So you know, you haven't studied as much theology maybe as as I have, uh, and you know, as Tom has and Ben has. So like, when you're listening to all this, like you know, what, what for you seems to be at stake? Like, do you have like, I mean, and you read some of these treatises, like, you know, maybe a little bit more of a, of a layman in a way, like, like maybe not quite as much, you know, time spent studying this. So like, I mean, for you, could you like, do do you, do you see this as just all sort of like, you know, unnecessary hair splitting Uh, or like, could you give some, some sort of context for why this might be important? Well, because I've done some studying, I have some opinions, but it seems to me, no, like it's clearly important, but it's true that it's important to us in a different way because of our context, which isn't political. And these guys did have a lot of like political motivations at the time about who was connected with who and who you were in with and whatnot. But as someone who has read origin, as I as you know, I recall reading him. Yeah, there was definitely he. Um, he talked about the economy of divinity. Um, oh no, wait, that was actually Tertullian. I'm sorry, I I'd actually just mixed that up. But he, so he didn't really talk about it in that way. But I think he may have inspired talk like that. And all I think we mean by that is this subordinate idea that um, uh, Ben brought up, but. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's important because we do believe in one God, and yet we want to affirm the deity of these three different people, it seems. So there's obviously, like, an important for even the lay Christian, I think, and they should care about this. Um, I, I mean, because of my studying, I've come away kind of thinking that actually the only reason the East walked away from the council disagreeing wasn't because they thought it was some other heresy. It was actually a linguistic problem. Uh, but when the Latin was translated over, um, it made sense to those speaking Latin. Um, yet I, I think that there were several uses of the word homoousios at the time. And some of them were understanding it to mean something else. Um, but anyway, I, yeah, no, anyway, to try to get to your original question, though, yeah, it's important to even the lay Christian because we do want to affirm that there is one God because of our Jewish origin in that sense. That there is only one God, yet we do also affirm, as the Bible affirms, the deity of um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, yeah. Okay, I appreciate that. I, so, Tom, what were you going to say? I'm sorry for cutting you off. I just wanted to get Trevor in there. No, totally. I just I wanted to uh, address a few things that Ben said. Um, one of which I do agree with, and one of which I don't quite agree with. Um, actually, you know what? I preface that, and I don't remember what I don't agree with anymore. But I do know, nonetheless, 
this isn't uh, one thing I want to address is not something that uh, I think Ben entailed by anything he said. But um, I want to share a bunch of passages from Origin really quickly that we read uh, in the past, not to disagree with Ben, because I do think that you have this strong vein of Originism in the East. And I think that you had this tendency amongst Eastern bishops to, um, to identify with Origen's theology and were uncomfortable with the possibility of modalism coming into the church. Again, Sabellianism or modalism, the idea that Jesus is a mode of the Father. <clears throat> but I want to point out brief, just a few things that show that Origen is very different from Arius because Arius very clearly denies that Jesus is eternal. He says there was a time when Jesus was not. Uh, and so a few things that Origen says. Um, one, Origen says, uh, who can suppose or believe that God the Father ever existed even for a moment of time without having generated this wisdom, meaning Jesus? Therefore, we have always held that God is the Father of his only begotten Son who was born indeed of him and derives from him what he is, here we go, but without any beginning, meaning there was never a beginning to the word or to the son. He's begotten of God. And so Ben's right when he says that the father generates the son in a sense, but it is not that the father existed and then the son existed, which is what Arius maintains. So I just want to make it clear the differences between origin and Arius. And then uh, let him then who assigns a beginning to the word or wisdom of God, take care that he be not guilty of impiety against the unbegotten father himself, seeing that he denies that he had always been a father and had generated the word. And so their origin is saying that God is eternally a father. And because he's eternally a father, there must eternally be a son. Um, and then there were just a couple more real quick. I don't want, sorry to take up so much time. Well, um, I, I think, Oh, you want to keep your, oh, you're going to do the other ones? Yeah. Okay. Yes, yes, because there are a few here that there's some different points that are made. Right. So he talks about the omnipotence, which is a characteristic of God. So he says, the omnipotence of the Father and the Son is one and the same, as God and the Lord are one and the same with the Father. Uh, seeing that God is the Father, that the Savior is also God, so also since the Father called omnipotent, no one ought to be offended that the Son of God is also called omnipotent. And so there is no dissimilarity whatsoever between the Son and the Father. And so theologically, philosophically, the term essence, I agree, is this term that is coined with the hope of creating an agreeable term, but nonetheless, historically and philosophy has come to describe the characteristics that a being has. And so since the Father and the Son here, he says, have the same characteristics, uh, he is kind of acceding to that general notion. He also says there is no other second goodness existing in the Son, save that which is in the Father. Therefore, also the Savior himself rightly says in the gospel, there is no good save one only, that the Son is not different goodness, but of that which the Father has. Um, and then he says that Christ has both the divine nature, there's the key word, and human nature. Uh, and so the term nature, I don't know what the Greek is there. I don't have a Greek text in front of me. But nature undoubtedly is a word that in meaning is similar to essence. Um, it's really hard when you get to these words because it's very hard to concretely define such terms. Um, and so that's kind of the big thing I wanted to point out is that, is that Origen is not teaching what Arius taught. And so, but I do agree with Ben that there is this discomfort in the East that they want to cling to Origen. Um, but a lot of them go right into Arianism. I don't know to what degree Eusebius was an Arian, because I've never read him discreetly and distinctly Eus agree with that. Eusebius I, is called a semi-Arian. He does not agree that there was a time when Jesus was not. He just doesn't Which would make him more like Origen. Yeah. So hold on. I want to then kind of pose a question to you guys, because there is a popular well, – I seems popular, because I've said it to other people, and they've gone, yeah, yeah. I've – I've heard it taught, I believe it was actually by William Lane Craig, the philosopher. He also has his doctorate in theology. But anyway, he, he taught that essentially the reason why people walked away in 325 uncomfortable and why they needed 
those in the East, that is, and why they ended up having to come back and rehash this thing, and it didn't get finalized until 380, was that there was three different understandings of the word usios, and I don't remember all three of them, but one of them, say homo usios, would have meant literally made of the sun kind of stuff. And that there were people who walked away from the council thinking that that's what was meant, or at least were confused. They were like, do they mean literally the the one thing and it's the same one thing, or is it just they're made of the same stuff? And that there were those who disagreed because of this. Is this in the scholarship? Do you guys know about this? So, I mean, we're going to get to – a lot of that stuff comes out later. So the position – uh, the position that's called homoiousios, just to clarify, it is never actually a term that anyone ever uses. It's uh, usi- uh, homokatousios, um, which is uh, substance according or uh, homo- like according to substance. That's actually what's said. It's a little bit of a historical fiction um, that anyone ever actually wrote the phrase homoousios and homoiousios. Um, just, I mean, that it's a common misconception, uh, but um, in the extant Greek literature, that exact word doesn't exist. Um, but, um, but it's like according to substance. So there's like, there are, there are semi, or there are those who say that Jesus is just like homeon, um, just like God. There are some who say that he is like according to substance. Homokatusion, uh, and then there's like, or, and then there's the same essence, and so there was a fear. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a distinction over those various um, sort of positions that eventually gets played out for about fifty or sixty years before Constantinople. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, Constantine is the first one to use the phrase homoousios, which is a, a, a Platonic term, um, and and he was the first one to apply it. Uh, to uh, the Christian God. Um, Are we sure about that, Chad? Because I, I remember going in the past, I mean, when we're reading stuff, it says in translation, same nature, same essence, same substance. We, we commented on that many times, and I can't remember, because I know there are times when I said, Chad, you have the Greek, and you looked it up. I don't remember what, if you ever came up with one word that said homoousios, but I do know that there were corollary terms that we saw all the time in the old literature right. that we well, and one other, I mean, yeah, as far as I know, it's, it's sort of considered, well, I mean, he, are he, well, I guess we could at least say um, that Constantine was unfamiliar with Origen saying them, and he applies that term. And Eusebius doesn't appeal to Origen in his letter um, for a, a substantiation for the use of the term. Um, one other point that should be made here that we sort of went over a little bit, we read origin. Um, it, it actually seems that, um, at this point in 325, hypostasis, hypostasis, and usia mean about the same thing. Um, which is hypostasis means that which stands under, that's where we get substantia in Latin. Um, and it seems to be a very similar word to usias and it comes to mean something very different. Um, which, you know, the final orthodoxy after 381 will be one usia, three hypostases, one mm. essence, uh, three um, persons. Um, but, uh, but that's actually, so part of the problem here is Origen uh, seems to use uh, hypostasis and usia as if it's the same word, because to him it, so- it seems to be. And, and I would add to this debate over whether or not Arius is reading Origen correctly or Eusebius is reading Origen correctly. I mean, as Ben has correctly pointed out, Origen is the fount for a lot of this theology in the East. So Gregory of Nyssa um, who is the, and Gregory of Nazianzus, who both we're going to read later, but who both affirm this one essence, one usia, three hypostasis um, formulation, they all, cons- I mean, they are all reading Origen. They all are orthodox and as orthodox as it comes. Um, and I they remember- love Origen. Hey, I can remember one thing we read, but it's in Latin, so it's not using homoousios. But Tertullian definitely says one substance with consubstantia and trace persona. Uh-huh. So even though it's not, it's Latin, so it's not Greek, it's not homoousios, I think you could make the argument that you could be reaching for a Tertullianistic if that's that's not a word, but definition or translation. You know? Yeah, I want to kind of yeah, respond to what uh, Tom was saying earlier as well, because I think that's fair to say. I mean, this is 
a fairly orthodox position to talk about the essences here. And in fact, Arianism um, or Arianism, we have to differentiate that from the uh, yeah yeah not to confuse white supremacy, everybody. Arian, yeah, that's that's why a lot of people like to say Arianism yeah. to prevent. Yeah, I, I, I say Arianism, <laughs> but but um, most of the Eastern bishops would not consider themselves Arian. Uh, followers of Arius, um, and they, they're like, why should we be following a priest? These are, these are bishops, and Arius was just a mere priest. They're like, no, we're not following a priest, but we do subscribe um, to what we make, we're calling now the originist uh, doctrine, and, and, and Tom's definitely right to point out there's a big difference between some of uh, Origen's conclusions and, and Arius's, and arguably the most important being this co-eternality. Um, I don't believe that the originists or even Eusebius would say there was a time when the sun was not. Yet the, the power of the, dis let me back up one second. So the reason that Arius is used and the reason that that's such an important term is because it was political. Uh, without getting too deep into it, in the West, there was the Donatist schism in which the African church was splitting with the Orthodox church over basically letting uh, in um, people who had lapsed, who, who had fallen away from the church in, uh, during the persecutions. That also happened in Alexandria. And in fact, that is underlying a lot of the, Arian schism as well is that there was a, a factional split in Alexandria and that ended up leading to the doctrine doctrinal split and Arius was kind of used as this kind of figurehead um, and and that sourced that division but what we're seeing that's a bit deeper I believe is this essence of who Christ is and his role in the church is being um, identified in a way that was uncomfortable to many and some listeners might think that this is hair splitting but I, here's one reason why I think it's not is that if you start equating the son with the father, then the son loses some of the essence of who he is. And so Jesus is always referred to as the son of God. If we say that Isaac is the son of Abraham, oh, and by the way, he basically is Abraham. Okay, so Jesus is the son of God. Oh, basically he is God. Then something can be a little bit lost there, the originists would claim, is that the word of God, if we just simply say that is God, you're, you're losing it in a very important distinction. And one, and, and this is originistic, one is that the word proceeds from, it finds its origin in God. And so by uh, equating the two, you're losing a very important and very meaningful theological distinction. And I would argue that many in the Orthodox tradition have lost this distinction. I've had a lot of conversations about this. And most people are like, oh yeah, Jesus um, just is God, as opposed to saying he's the son of God. I think it's a very important discussion to say, what, why do we call him the son of God as opposed to God? And so, again, to, to kind of emphasize this, the originists are going to fight for the fact that he is generated from God. And this is where it gets – origin never calls him a creature as such, but the language he uses is saying, yes, he is therefore a product produced by – it's the Aryans who go so far as to saying he's a creature. Originists never go that far. But being generated, um, which is scriptural, monogenes, monogenes um, the only begotten, in Greek, it's monogenes, and the genes is the root word for Genesis, uh, generated. Um, it means literally the offspring. He is offspring of God. And, and equating offspring with the source of that, um, I, I think, is a theological um, naivety. It's, it's a simplicity that the originists were wishing to avoid. I need to interject and be a philosopher real quick. Um, ben used the word is, and he said, well, I just need to do it, because he said, some people will be overly simplistic and say just Jesus is God. Now, I just want to clarify, there is a sense of the word is in which that's perfectly accurate. And then there's a way in which I agree with Ben in which it's not accurate. So there are two senses of the word is. There's the is of predication and is of identification or identity. And that would be like if I say Tom just is Tom. So Tom's identical with himself. That is the is of identity. But if I say something like, this book is read, I'm predicating of the book, or I should say I'm ascribing a property of the book that it is read. So there's a way in which we would say Jesus is deity as a predicate. There's a property he has. He, is a, he has deity as a property. So Jesus is God, and we say that, but you're right that people don't often mean that. A lot of people like to use it in an identity sense. Oh, in which you got to be careful because I use it in the identity sense. Well, but <laughs> as do... As you, do all Trinitarians. Well, some people, <laughs> yeah, kind of, right? But if we were, like, perfectly accurate, what we would, 
you're right. Like, there's a way in which we say, yeah, he is God. But what we like, if we were to actually make a perfectly accurate identity statement, we would say, what's God? The Trinity. The Trinity. But God is many things. God, but, but I don't know that it's proper that if you could, Trinity is the only identity. Well, this is just where I'm going to, well, people, maybe everyone here would disagree with me, but being philosopher Trevor right now, I'll at least then at least say my position that if we're going to speak in by the logical form, at least like how we would formalize this in logic, if we're going to use identity statements here, we would normally say, the Trinity is identical to God, essentially. God just is the Trinity. And normally when you say that to people, that shouldn't make people uncomfortable, like because that is what we believe. That is the orthodox position, technically. I was just trying to get into the little nuance of the word is because there's a way in which I think we could all agree on some use of the word is, and then there is a, others. I did want to bring something. I, I, th- what you're seeing here, everybody, I think <laughs> – is confusion in the same order that there was probably even le- probably more so, I don't know, maybe less so that there was initially because Ben said a bunch of stuff that I would take extreme issue with, <laughs> except for the fact that I may not, depending on what he meant by it. And so, well, that's what so, I yeah. And so it's like, and, and same thing with what Trevor just said, when Trevor said the Trinity is God, I certainly don't feel uncomfortable with that, but I do believe that Jesus properly you can use an identity is with Jesus and God. However, I would I would say you can't use an identity is with Jesus and the Father. And that's the mystery of the Trinity. If in most things, if you can use an identity is, so like I have a blue, I have a microphone here, a snowball microphone. If I say the microphone is um the tool that I'm using, well, yeah, I don't know. But well, hold on, but God is tripersonal. That's true, and Jesus is God. Okay, but that's one person. Doesn't it doesn't matter. That's the that, at least that's historically the way that the, the church and what is considered orthodox. That's the mystery. They say Jesus is God. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is God, and that's a mystery. Right. That's where the mystery rests. So, okay, Before so, you go, I need to read this passage. Well, Just a sec, let me because okay. this is what I actually brought wanted to bring up in addressing Ben. Again, just coming back to something I already read that Origen said, there is no dissimilarity whatsoever between the Son and the Father. And so although I agree that Origen teaches the generational language, um, it's it's absolutely true. He says it over and over again that the Son is generated or born and comes from the Father. He nonetheless, he, he uses the word God of the Son. And so he does not feel uncomfortable using that phrase. He ascribes the characteristics of God to the Son, omnipotence, omniscience. Um, he says they have the same nature. He says the Son is divinity. All of that is language he uses. So he does not feel uncomfortable using that. So although I do think the point that Ben is making, or at least I would say the point that would be important would be we all have to understand that the Son is not the Father. I would take great issue if somebody tried to say, therefore, we probably should feel uncomfortable saying the Son is not God. And I think Origen would feel uncomfortable with that too. Well, actually, I think that's the distinction that needs to be made for the originist. What, what I'm saying is, is the originist position. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily subscribing to it. And I, I think that's consistent, though. Tom correctly pointed out he has all the likeness of God. Um, the Son has the likeness of God the Father. And that's the whole point of the home oi usia. Um, that term means of like essence. Again, to emphasize that point, if we say that Isaac, the son of Abraham, basically is Abraham, we've missed something. But if we say he has all the characteristics of Abraham, in fact, he is like Abraham's seed passes on through Isaac. That's awesome, and that's very originistic. But he doesn't have all the characteristics of Abraham. Well, he has many different ones, different height, probably different ways. We're saying that, that some essential essential part of his nature is passing on. And so what's essential of Abraham? It's the covenant passing on through his seed. And so that's, I don't know what that would even mean in a human biological sense. Okay. I mean, we're obviously using so, a, we're using a metaphor. So you can have characteristics that are like the characteristics, that, and that's the word that you use. It's like he's like him in all these ways. The, the, the no, so there's no of the originists is that yeah, similarity of of similar essence would be a synonym. But the importance of originism is that the essence, the person of who the son is, gets lost um, in a sense after this period for originists. That the living word of God becomes conflated with God himself. And so in the New Testament passages, we always see God the Father and just God always synonymous. God the Father is God. We always see Christ as the Son of God. 
And we don't see him as God. The, term, the Bible uses, frequently refers to him as God. It, it does not refer, refer to him as God explicitly. It I absolutely does. The word says, in the, yeah, God was the word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Was God. This is emphasizing the Logos theology origin. This is, this is like the heart of the Logos theology. And so the importance here is that when uh, the subordinationism is trying to explain the different roles and the relationship between the son and father, that gets lost a little bit after this point for the originists. And for example, when Jesus says something to the effect of, I'm going to the father for he is greater than I, People can't accept that anymore after Nicaea. They're, they they're, absolutely they're, can't. No, they're of equal. That's, no, they're equal. They're just, the son is not less than the father. They're, he's not subordinate. They are the same. The father is not greater. Is, is basically you don't have to ascribe to subordinationism to not be able to answer those questions. They do have answers to those questions. What's more is the, the Nicene Creed and subsequent orthodoxy makes a clear distinction between the father and the son. Always has, always will. The, the, the Trinitarians you might run into nowadays in the churches are usually evangelicals who are not familiar with Orthodox Trinitarianism. But nonetheless, Orthodox Trinitarianism has always made a sharp distinction between the Father and the Son. So they're saying that the Father is greater than the Son. In certain respects, they don't acknowledge subordination. One proceeds from the other. There are not only that, Jesus, lots of times, of course, Orthodox Trinitarians raise the question as Jesus qua man versus Jesus qua God, meaning Because Jesus has a man nature, Jesus has a God nature. Jesus qua man is definitely inferior to uh, the Father because he has, as in Philippians 2 points out, the kenosis, meaning he he empties himself. That is, what was his divine prerogative is empty. These are all orthodox responses, and they have them. So, yes, modern evangelicals who are unfamiliar with traditional doctrines of the Trinity don't have answers, but that doesn't mean orthodox Trinitarians don't have answers to these questions. Yeah, he humbles himself. That is the whole idea. Yeah, and I mean, I have to read, reread Origin. It's been a while, but I feel like you're the way you made it sound in that last discussion sounded like you claimed way more than Origin was willing to claim. He seems pretty comfortable calling Jesus God. Um, and what's more is, is if we talk about God as the son, as Jesus as the Son of God, clearly, in some sense, that's using human language to explain something that is incomprehensible. You could certainly compare him to Isaac and Abraham, but it's very clear that whatever the, whatever the nature is between the two is very different. There's very little, I would say, in terms of essence, in which Isaac is, is, God, is Abraham. Very little. He, well, I mean, he's human, so in that sense, but so is Trevor. In that sense, there's DNA-wise. I mean, Isaac's DNA is more like Abraham's, but in terms of characteristics that we look at, we would say those aren't very there's so many differences, it's, it's, in, it's unbelievable. Sure. The point Whereas I was here, emphasizing was the sonship notion. Originism is rooted in uh, Philo-Judaeus, uh, to an extent, the Jewish philosopher that was right before Christ. Philo-Judaeus says the word of God, the Logos, is an emanation of God. In fact, it's like a second God, and we could even call this the, quote, son of God. This is Philo-Judaeus before the, the Christian, uh, before the ministry of Christ. So we have a f- Jewish Platonist philosopher who's trying to suggest this notion of emanation is coming out. It's a second God, an emanation of God. And so uh, WHC Friends, a great Christian uh, scholar, says that um, Origen and his teachings uh, come under attack during this period because they find that the Sabellianism was so uh, dissatisfactory. Origen's ideas derived from the identification of the Son with the divine logos, the creative force in the universe, creating, linking God and creation. Notice it's a link. It's an intermediary. We're losing the, the, that essence. The originists are losing that essence when we conflate the intermediary just with God himself. So he says, from apart from the arbitrary character of the word's identification with Jesus, um, logically the word, could not, the, the word could be interpreted as a, quote, creature, unlike the father, subject to eternal generation. The father is not subject to generation. Um, he, he is that which generates. The son being generated has an essential, that's an essence, difference. So though forever with the Father, so in time, absolutely forever with the Father, and sharing essence, the fact of generation rendered the word different and subordinate to him. Okay, I don't take issue necessarily with the subordinate. I do take issue with the difference, especially if you're describing that language to origin. Again, I repeat right here, God is the Father. The Savior is also God. He says God. He has no discomfort saying that. He says, so also since the Father is omnipotent, no one should be offended that the Son of God should be called omnipotent. 
So when, so let me, because you're trying to explain originism, which in my mind, I've yet to read anything by origin on the Trinity, which he even uses the word Trinity right here. Um, he uses the word Trinity right here, the unity of the Trinity, i.e. along with the unchangeable father and his son as also the Holy Spirit. I have taken no issue with anything I've read in origin on the Trinity. I've taken issue with lots of things he wrote, nothing on the Trinity. Um, and the fact that it might be rooted in Philo Judaeus doesn't mean anything. I mean, I mean, it means stuff, don't be wrong, that's significant. But it doesn't, he's not committed to having to believe what Philo believed. He might have seen these things in Philo and made connections, but that doesn't mean that he has to ascribe to that difference. Um, but as far as what you're asserting, I agree with. We need to recognize the difference. But if, but I will not acknowledge not only that that Jesus is not God, but I won't even acknowledge that Origen doesn't teach that Jesus is God, as I have quoted right here. But aside from that, we have uh, this, you know, or I should say, in addition to this, we have this issue of essence, which re, or usios, which is really, of course, a very difficult thing that we have to. That I don't know how we're going to be able to work through it. We're talking about what something is. In my mind, when we talk about essence, we're talking about what a thing is. If Jesus is God, identity, and if the Father is God, identity, then they have the exact same usios because they are God. And that's why I believe 100% in homo usios. That All that, of course, I let me, of course, clarify by saying I acknowledge everything that's been said about the political side of things and all of that. But this is why I feel very comfortable. I'll, I'll I should have Chad hasn't said anything in a long time. I feel, <laughs> well, I mean, well, yeah, I was going to cut you. I was going to try to cut you off, but I couldn't figure out where to uh, mostly. I mean, you know, I, uh, so friend is a very good WHC friend is a very good scholar <coughs> describing originism. He's describing Philo Judaeus. Um, the only thing that I would add here is that, Getting, you know, the fact that varying scholars have varying perspectives on exactly what Origen is saying, um, you know, it's it's part of the the difficulty of writing like what Friend writes, which is he tries to, um, you know, simplify down a lot of different works and a lot of different debates because um, we're going. I can't wait till we read Gregory of Nyssa because um, uh, he's one of my favorites, and Gregory of Nazianzus, both of whom. Uh, believe that Origen is saying uh, what Tom just described, which is um, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are um, all uh, you know unique persons, but one essence. Um, and in some sense, they're the same, um, except for they're distinguishable in person. Um, and the reason that Jesus can say what Jesus says is because of his humanity. All of this is exactly what Gregory uh, of Nazianzus says and Gregory of Nyssa says. They are Eastern. They love origin, um, and they're not semi-Aryans um, or uh, originists, as at least Friend defines them. The only other point that I was going to make about Philo-Judaeus um, and about Arius is they are working from, and and I think that Ben has a, uh, and I'm not, this isn't a criticism, uh, but um, the, who God is in the Platonic system is uh, is a being beyond um, uh, beyond this realm. So um, God needed an intermediary in order to create, and that's all that Philo Judaeus is explaining, and that's what Arius is explaining. So the essential conception of the being, the ground of existence uh, for Arius, for Philo Judaeus, and for Plato is the same. And I feel like what Christianity has to offer, and and here I'm I'm you know I actually will take issue with von Harnack, uh, but and say that actually even Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus will say no, there has to be some way that the God um, who is the ground of being, the very essence, the thing beyond the thing, in some way came to Earth in the person of Jesus Christ, um, and that's the very thing that Philo Judaeus. Uh, that Plato, that Arius can't say. They can't in any way identify God, um, the very God who is beyond creation. They can't identify him directly with the God uh, who walks in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who walks on the earth. And that, to me, is one of the most profound mysteries and also the most meaningful thing uh, to me in Christian theology. Um, and so, you know, so that's where I have a hard time with Arius. Um, and like I said, ch following his line back through Philo Judaeus, 
is being able to see God and the connecting um, the humanity and the divinity in the person of Jesus Christ, which is theosis and salvation for Athanasius, who is not a semi-Aryan. No, he's not. <laughs> so, I mean, does that, I, I don't know, does that make sense, Ben? Are you, do you, you are you? Oh, yeah, you no, I think this was a really good discussion. I think I was trying to get at the root of what Origenism was, was arguing for. I think Tom answered that really well with a, a solid classical orthodox um, thought. I think that the the thing I admire about this podcast is we're trying to flesh out what these these guys were thinking. And it's a little bit difficult, you know, 2,000 years later, sure. looking back with, with the traditions we have. But I think... And with all the scholars. Who, exactly. Yeah. But I think this was, yeah, this is a very good discussion to try to say why is this important? Why is it just hair splitting over words? And I think that we at least attempted, and, and, and that was good, we got really into a, a why this theological issue is, is quite important. And um, at the very least, it, it pulls us to understand what, who is the Son of God, who is Christ, who is, you know, God the Father. And, and uh, I think that that's an important part of the, or an essential part of the Christian faith. And I think the audience got us all here splitting over words. So yes. we actually kind of, we actually kind of uh, recreated the, the ambiance. I think one thing, I, I love how Chad just said that about uh, where I don't remember if you said you were disagreeing with von Harnack or what. Yeah, but, I'm disagreeing with von Harnack because he says that um, Platonism is is like a is like a disease that enters Christianity and corrupts it basically. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But w- what I thought you said there after that was beautiful about about in some sense God becoming flesh, which is the problem with Arianism. I love Origin, don't love Arius. <laughs> I agree with that, yeah. <laughs> and that's and that's uh, and that's I think I mean just fundamentally that's what he denies. I should add I know we're running short on time. We still haven't read anything from the actual creed. Oh yeah, I was, <laughs> was going to recommend that he should insert that at the beginning. Of you the should video. read it, Chad, and then maybe like say, and then we're going to debate mostly over that section right there. <laughs> yeah, because there is that little section which is the key section. Which we could even just pull up here in a second. Let me see here where oh, yeah. the, Latin, the very end, the anathema. No, well, yeah, the I would say the anathema and the the homoousion passage, right? So he says. So I'll read both of those. One part of it, the homoousion passage goes in one. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten that is of one essence with the Father, God of God, light of light. True God of true God, begotten, not made, being of one substance. There, that's it. Homozian with the Father, and then the then Athema at the end where he goes. But those who say there, oh, and I should add again, this has already been clarified by Chad. This is in the original. It is not in the not Nicaeo Constantinopolitan version that comes out in three eighty one. This anathema. But those who say there was a time when he was not and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or unchangeable or alterable, they're condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. So those were the sections that were really fueling what we've been talking about. Well, and Chad, you can, or Trevor, when you can, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, this, this is me being a Greek and Latin teacher, but you, you know, substantia is actually a better translation of hypostasis. <laughs> Um, and, <laughs> and substantia is the Latin uh, root there. So saying of one substance is actually sort of saying of one hypostasis with the father, which is not what the Greek says. And this is, I mean, this is part of why all of this stuff gets really lost in dead languages. And, yeah. you, can, and you can see why, like, you know, as we did all this hair splitting, if you like, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's actually... Um, Erasmus, who coins the phrase um, that theologians debate uh, angels dancing on how many angels can dance on the head of the pin. That was never actually a medieval debate, by the way, uh, but it is kind of funny, which is kind of seems like what we're doing here. Um, but uh, but it but it really matters. And then you can see why like people continue to say the word hypostasis and usia in these uh, you know when they're teaching because it's just so hard to translate. But also because you want to be afraid that you're not an anathema. <laughs> And so it's, it, it's just like, okay, this is what I know I have to say. And even if I don't fully understand it, I'm going to keep using the same Greek word so I can be sure um, that I'm not in the wrong, which I think there's a problem with that. Um, but uh, then again, I know that most people 
are not going to go to the links that I have to learn uh, Latin, Greek, and read, you know, these guys in their original languages. Well, and I'll tell you that that's going to be a problem, too, when you consider the East versus the West, because the West is for following Tertullian's language of consubstantia, one substance or one essence, trace persona, three persons. The East does not feel good or comfortable with right. persona as language. Trevor, you're going to say? Oh, well, and I was just going to say, it kind of to connect to the interjection I had earlier anyway was that we, I was also just trying to say a way in which we were all agreeing in English yet also all could have been disagreeing in English. But I was also just trying to say that in English we do, we do have different ways of talking about it. And so, and in formal logic, a lot of, there's a lot of work by philosophers nowadays. I recommend Peter Van Inwagen's work on relative identity logic if you're so interested in this kind of crap, <laughs> where he takes the creed and formalizes the whole thing. Uh, Are you serious? Yes, and shows that there is no contradiction. But if you're so interested in this kind of stuff and you're like me, uh, for anyone out there in the audience, there is a way, and actually kind of that's what I was bringing up. I wasn't actually talking about what's stated gotcha, in the gotcha. creeds. I was act, I, I should have been clear about that. I was trying to say a way in which you can logically formalize the creeds. and But it was also a way in which you have to be careful when you're talking about the persons because, like, clearly the persons aren't the same. Yeah. I mean, this is the this is the whole don't confuse the persons. Totally. But don't not, separate not, the substance. Not separating the substance yeah. with confounding the persons. Exactly. Which we, which we read before. Not conf- That's right. Not confounding the persons nor, but nor separating the substance, you're right. And I don't know, and I'm not the scholar here, but I'd imagine even that would probably be a big deal to origin. Like, he would say, look, don't just literally equate the Son with the Father, they're different persons. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. These were all the, that was kind of the things I was trying to talk about, is like, in a logically formal system, like, we, we just do want to be careful, because even in English, it's confusing. It's already really freaking confusing in the original languages. So, Van and Wagon, super easy reading too. If you just want, yeah. Like a, yeah. I forget. I forget the name of the book. Maybe I'll look it up, and Chad can like put it in the uh, blog post show notes or something. But it's uh, it was good. I was being sarcastic, by the way. He's not easy reading. Well, he is. Oh, sorry. I actually took it seriously. I love Van Inwagen. I love him. Don't get me wrong. I think he's one of the clear philosophers. He I'll is say that. clear, but if you don't have the jargon already down, it'll be tough. Yeah, no. This is more for if you already read analytic philosophy because you're weird. <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. I got uh, this. This doesn't have to go in the podcast, Ben, if you don't want it to. Um, but well, for one, I just want to make sure, like, I wasn't trying to jump on you. I I mean, I did defend my position, but I hope you didn't feel like I was like, uh, harping on you or something. I don't think Ben feels, I feel like everything was a good conversation. Yeah, this is good. I I speak for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, let me just answer for Ben. Tom says I'm fine. (laughs) Tom says he's fine. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We will see you next week with the theology of Athanasius in his work, The Life Antony.